Well, good morning, church. That was a hearty good morning, like that. Good to see you and good to be with you in time of worship and around God's Word this morning. There was this uh, competition that took place on New Year's Day in Manhattan in 2008. It began, this competition began Tuesday morning and ended Wednesday afternoon after more than 29 grueling hours. Staying power was the key to winning this contest. The game was simple. The man or woman who sits in a recliner the longest without falling asleep or getting up wins. It was the ultimate couch potato competition. You're going, oh, sign me up. Well, the four participants sat in recliners in front of a dozen 42-inch high-definition plasma TVs and a couple of 14-foot HD projection TVs watching continuous sports, mainly college football bowl games, and an endless highlight loops. The participants could order unlimited food and drinks, but they weren't allowed to go to sleep or leave their recliners except for restroom breaks every one, every, uh, once every eight hours. Okay, now I'm out. How ridiculous is this? Well, two of the participants gave in to sleep deprivation. A Manhattan librarian, Stan Friedman, emerged as the champion couch potato after runner-up Nate Lopez ran to the restroom before the allotted break time. The winner was hailed as one who endured 29 grueling hours sitting there doing nothing. He won a $5,000 prize package including a huge TV, a cozy recliner, and a trophy with a potato on it. He said, I have a 350 square foot apartment so I don't know what I'll do with the TV, but I will make room for the recliner. If someone can go the distance for a TV set, recliner, and a trophy with a potato on it, how much more should we endure for what's in store for us? I want to talk about God's end game this morning. What's God's end game? The return of Jesus. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now to believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ does not suggest at all that we are to stand on the street corner where the end is near sign. It does not mean at all that we are to sell all our possessions and go on some rooftop or some mountaintop as some have done waiting for him to come back. The return of Jesus. What does that mean for us? Are we to sit around and do nothing like a couch potato? Are we to spend our days figuring out when it will happen? The second coming of Christ, mentioned close to 300 times in the New Testament, is never brought up so that you could speculate about the end. Well, why is it brought up? Well, before we look at the passage that uh, Melissa read for us in Titus, I want to look at the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Now we continue in our sermon series, True North, 
as we make our way through EFCA's, Evangelical Free Church of America's statement of faith. You see, what we believe determines who we are. And what should be clear in our study, this sermon series on the essential beliefs of our faith, is that this is not merely aimed at the head, but at the heart. And it's particularly appropriate for me to reiterate this as we look at what we believe about Christ's return. I mean, you place 10 Christians uh, in the same room and bring up the topic of Christ's return, there will likely be a lively discussion. And if you really want to get things going, speak of where you land on the tribulation. Now, church, too often... We get so bogged down in the debate over when the rapture will occur that we tend to miss the Bible's emphasis on the purpose of prophecy. And for that reason, I really appreciate uh, EFCA's statement on Christ's return. It's succinct. It majors on the essential purpose of prophecy, motivation for how we are to conduct ourselves while we wait. The statement reads, you'll see it on the screen, We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Jesus is coming back. You can count on it. But what are we to do while we wait? All right, that brings us to Luke chapter 21. Now, let me say this as the main point right up front in case we do get lost in the details of it all. I want to give you, as I often do, the bottom line, the takeaway, the main point, however you look at it. It's this. Keep your eyes looking up, but your feet firmly on the ground. Keep your eyes looking up, but your feet firmly on the ground. This is future tense living. Eyes up feet on the ground. Now, as I read these words in Luke 21, really, a question we must, we must ask and always ask as we approach Scripture is, why do we have these words? Why do we have these words? Why did God find it necessary to include Luke 21 in his communication with us? Well, in answering that, I have arrived at a threefold purpose of Jesus' words here. Threefold purpose of Jesus' words here. The first purpose of Jesus' words here is to remind us that hard times are normal. First purpose here of Jesus' words is to remind us that hard times are normal. All right, follow along with me. I'm going to be reading verse 5 in Luke 21. It gives us the context of our section of interest this morning. Verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stone and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Okay, so the setting is that the disciples are standing around. They're admiring the beauty of the temple. And Jesus kind of uh, squashes their enthusiasm a little bit with some reality of what is to come. He speaks of a day when the temple will be destroyed, which in fact did take place in, in, in A.D. 70, 30, 35, 40 years from this point. But when Jesus speaks of this temple being destroyed, 
and, and demolished, it, it triggers the disciples to ask three questions. Verse 7, teacher they asked, when will these things happen? Question number one is, when will the destruction of the temple take place? That's question number one. Question number two is the end of verse seven, middle of verse seven to the end. And what will be the sign, singular now, a sign, they're just looking for a sign that they are about to take place. That's question number two. Now, if you're on top of your game this morning, you should ask, well, where's question number three? I don't see it here. Well, Luke doesn't record it for us, but in the same uh, uh, setting, uh, Matthew does. You can jot it down, you can check it out later. Matthew 24, verse three. Again, the verse will be up here for you. Matthew 24, verse 3 is our third question. They ask, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's their, question. That's their third question. Now, I want you to see here that the disciples, in asking those questions, equated the destruction of the temple as the end of the world. They could not conceive of life without a temple. And so, for there to no longer be a temple meant uh, the end of this age. They, they, they equate the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. But Jesus doesn't. I mean, the disciples' assumption, the disciples' assumption that the destruction of the temple meant the end of this world and the sign of his return was false. It was a false assumption. Now, we're no, we're no different than the disciples. We do the very same thing. We come to Scripture with certain assumptions, with a, with a certain framework that we immediately place on the passage that we are reading. And so we, so we can come to any passage of Scripture and our view of end times frames what we read. Now, we are to have a framework. I understand that. We ought to understand all of Scripture when we come to any passage of Scripture. I understand that. But my challenge to you, church, and it's a challenge to me as well, as a serious student and learner of God's Word, that you come to the words in Scripture that immediately trigger your views of end times, that you remain open to what is being said. Can, can we do that? I think we can. For you may discover, and I have, that your particular view that you want to force on the text isn't valid at all. Now, what we must do, even with all the differing opinions and thoughts and beliefs around all of this, is that we must find the unifying point or points of application. What we should all rally around is not some particular view of end times, but what is this saying to my life now? How am I to live? What are we to do while we wait? And that's where Jesus takes them. That's exactly where Jesus takes them. Jesus says to them, look at verse 8 now. Verse 8. He says to them, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Now listen, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old can understand those words. It's pretty straightforward. That there will be, and there certainly we're seeing it in our lifetime, right? People who predict all kinds of things to say the end is near. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home as I did, and, 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 and honestly, that, that is a blessing. 
But if you grew up in a Christian home as I did, and, and even you're, perhaps you're a casual observer of what Christians were saying about world events, you would be super familiar with the phrase, signs of the times. Signs of the times. Sign, sign, everywhere there's a sign. <laughs> right? And growing up, so when tragedy struck, there was a threat of war, there was an increase in crime, there were weather disturbances, my favorite local restaurant closed down, signs of the times. I got a little ridiculous there. On Christian radio in the 80s, in the 80s, preachers would take 30 minutes of precious airtime to explain the signs that all line up for Christ's return. And in my 34 years as pastor, if I had a dime, if I had a nickel, every time someone gave me material and books and articles and audio recordings that show me how this and that all line up perfectly with Scripture to say Jesus is coming back right around the corner, I'd be able to pay for my whole child's college education, maybe all three of them. All right, I hope I don't come across as cynical. <laughs> I, I, I struggle with it, I'll admit. But I am skeptical. I am skeptical. Because what I find troubling is how so much of what has been written and continues to be written on end times has all sorts of things lining up that may or may not be in Scripture. All right. Now, before you send me that email, <laughs> and some of you are already doing it on your phone. What's his email address? I am not saying, I am not saying it is wrong to study prophecy. And to dig in on it, and that's fine. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not. It is a very profitable exercise. Hear me on that. But what are we to make of signs? Jesus gives a clear warning here. Don't fall for all the predictions. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Not only that, he goes on to say, do not be frightened. Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. That word means terrified. It means anxious. It means fearful. You see many Christians walking around terrified, anxious, fearful. I do. I have to push it away myself. He says these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. It will not come immediately. These things must happen first. Notice that that wording there, and we have to ask, what are these things? I would say, all the normal things of living in this world that will take place after the destruction of the temple. Jesus' words in Luke 21 are very helpful here. He goes on to speak of wars and great earthquakes and famines and pestilences, which is diseases, and various places and fearful, and, 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 and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Don't be deceived. Don't be frightened. Don't be anxious. Jesus gives us these words here to, to, in advance that from the time of Jesus' departure, his ascension, and his return, there will be all kinds of catastrophes and natural disasters and wars and tumultuous events. And along with those troubles in life will come false teachers. Watch out. Watch out. For those who predict that all the signs are pointing in a certain direction, clear as day, he says, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't give them an ear. Don't go and buy all their books. 
These things in this section here that he's talking about have been going on since the work of Christ was finished on the cross and until he returns. This is the normal life in this age for the Christian for we live in a fallen, broken world. These things will be a constant part of life. It's normal. Matter of fact, it's abnormal when they don't happen. And he's told us in advance to remind us that hard times are normal. Listen, church, there is no need to live in a spirit of panic. But preparation. But preparation. And that leads to the second purpose of these words here. These words are given secondly. They're given to us to sustain and strengthen our faith. These words are given here in Luke 21 to sustain and strengthen our faith. Now in verses 12 through 19, you gotta stay with me here. Jesus gives them a heads up that even before all that he just said in verses 8 through 11 will take place, that there is going to be, as he speaks of in 12 through 19, hatred and persecution of believers. Notice the opening phrase of verse 12. He says, but before all this, before all what? Before all this, meaning before the destruction of the temple, before all that will be a normal part of life, he says to them, they will, the, those opposed to, to Christianity, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. Jesus makes it clear, and he's warned them before, that they as his followers should expect persecution. Jesus continues, follow along, middle of verse 12. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. Question then is, when did we see all of this take place? It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts. You can, you can read it for yourself. You see all kinds of hatred of those who claim the name of Jesus. You see all kinds of persecution for all those who said I'm followers of the way of Jesus. For example, Peter and John. Might remember in uh, Acts chapter 3, they healed the, the crippled man. And then because they healed the crippled man and said they did it in the name of Jesus, they are hauled off. And they stand before the Sanhedrin. And then what Jesus says here in verses 14 and 15, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you're going to defend yourselves. I'll give you the words. Well, when did that happen? Right there, exactly what what happened with Peter and John. They were given the words as they stood before the Sanhedrin. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words. I'll give you wisdom on how to act. And Peter and John were given the words at that exact moment to know what to say. Now, incidentally, Jesus' words of verse 15, that he would give you the words to say, it's not an excuse for laziness or being unprepared. I've heard pastors use this verse, oh, I don't know, he'll just give me the words to say, I'll just go and show up. Really? Like the pastor who told his congregation, they did not worry beforehand what to say. He didn't prepare for his sermons. God would give him the words from the time he left the parsonage, which was right next to the church. And by the time he went from the, his home, the parsonage, to the church on Sunday morning, God would give him the words to say. 
Well, unimpressed with his sermons, the church voted to buy a parsonage 30 minutes away from the church for the pastor to live in. <laughs> Try that one. Walk that distance and see. <laughs> All right, there's an application here, but that isn't it. Just as God would sustain his witnesses, he will sustain us in the midst of anything that comes against us in life, whether it's persecution or anything else. He will sustain his witnesses. Why? Because God is sovereign over all. And so if we're in that situation, we can believe that God had his hand in it. He's sovereign. Now church, is there anything more comforting than doctrine than the the sovereignty of God? And he says it here, verse 18, not a hair of your head will, will perish. That means nothing can happen to us unless Jesus permits it to happen. And nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So whatever may come up against us, whatever is happening to you, none of that takes God by surprise. You will be brought safely into his kingdom. So, verse 19 says, by standing firm, you will gain life. Stand firm. Stand firm. Keep your eyes looking up, but your feet firmly on the ground. And in those moments, and maybe you came into this room with this feeling today, you know, I, I, I just can't take it anymore. I've had it. This is too much to deal with. I, 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 I give up. On a drizzly afternoon in early 2015, seven people gathered for Washington, D.C.'s newest group. You know what the group was called? The Quitters Club. Tagline, let's give up on our dreams together. The founder, Justin Cannon, had quit all sorts of things, filmmaking, music, graphic design, and he was tortured by dueling forces of grand ambition and intense self-doubt. And so at one point, the founder, Cannon, expressed his growing exasperation. He says, you know, we should have a group where people want to give up on all their dreams. I was making a joke. But then somebody said, you know, that's, that's, that's a really good idea. So a few days later, he took action. He thought, in forming this quitters club, he might have one person there. But within 48 hours, 35 people signed up. And for the next two hours, one after another, expressed their dreams, their inability to make progress, and how they just wanted to give up. The invitation that was given to everybody said this, most of us have something special we'd like to do with our lives, but at the Quitters Club, we can help each other stomp out the brush fire set in our hearts and get on with our lives. But you know what happened with that Quitters Club? Surprisingly, they ended up encouraging each other to persevere. The one that wanted to give up was acting or whatever it was, their job. They said, no, keep going, Keep, 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 keep moving on, don't give up. And one attendee said, here we are at the Quitters Club, and we're all encouraging each other to keep going. And so month after month, they would meet to continue in their quest to help people quit, or as it turned out, to keep on trying. And I thought, that's the church. That's the church. We come into this room ready to quit something, Right, we've had it. We've been battered by the, by the world. We've been beaten up by inflation. and We're just sick and tired of it all. And we come in this room and say, I'm done. No, 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 church. We help each other endure. To go, no, no, this is a safe place. This is where we want to encourage you. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Persevere. 
That's what it's about when Christians gather together. Matter of fact, in Hebrews, it reminds us to put courage into each other as long as we have here on this earth. We are to help each other, not quit. So are you fearful this morning? Are you, are you lacking confidence? Are you ready just to give up, walk away? Say, I'm done with this. Are you wondering what's the use? Church, don't quit. Don't give up. By standing firm, verse 19, you will gain life. We are told these things in advance to sustain and strengthen our faith. All right, I need to give you a third purpose here. These words are given to us in Luke 21 to motivate us to get on with the work. These words are given to us by Jesus to motivate us to get on with the work. Now again, for these disciples in context here, the temple coming down was so dreadful and of such magnitude that it was like the world was coming to an end. Now as a side note here, and you can take this for what it's worth, but I believe that after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, there isn't anything else that needs to happen that would delay the return of Jesus Christ. All right, work that out yourself. What we do see here, though, Jesus reassuring them that the toppling of the temple meant the turning of a new day. It meant for these disciples that God would no longer be worshipped merely in a temple in a building. It wouldn't be limited to a place. That the great message of the gospel is that Jesus would be worshipped not in a place, but everywhere all around the globe. Isn't that what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria? Not what place? Everywhere. And so the focus for the disciples then is going to shift from a building to spreading the good news to all the corners of the earth. That there was work to do. And the predictions made by Jesus himself were not given so the disciples would sit down on Monday mornings for Bible study to debate the timing of his return or the timing of all these events. No, he gives them these words to call them to vigilance and to action and to move forward and do the work. That's why we find the words at the end of all this. Go over to verse 34. Before you accuse me of being a chicken and skipping all the verses before that, don't have time. You can call me all you want. But what I have done, though, is I've, I've created an insert. It's a little half sheet that you can get on your way out on, that, on the ministry counter, kind of outlining uh, the events here as I see them, okay? As I, and I could change my mind as of tomorrow. I don't know. But there it is. You can check it out. All right, verse 34. That was a little promo thing. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, which means wasted living. Sort of just kind of partying on, giving no thought to what lies ahead. He says, be careful, your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. In other words, what he's saying here is, for those who think that this is all there is, what we can see and touch and, and we can, this is it? Then chase your dreams, he says. Live it up. Collect all the toys you can. Live for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry. But for those whose eyes are looking up, waiting for his return, Jesus says, verse 36, be always on the watch 
and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What he's saying escape is that you don't fall, that you endure through all of it because you've been prepared. Be watchful, be prayerful, be faithful. That's what he says. Keep looking up. Most certainly, it's okay. We can keep looking up. It isn't wrong to be looking for his return. But every generation of Christians thought it would be in their day. Martin Luther, in the 1500s, and speaking of the return of Christ, he said, I think it's not too far away. He thought, he even went on to say, that Jesus was going to return before the scriptures were completely translated into German. He said, all is done and fulfilled. And parties correct. But you see, Jesus wants us to be watchful, to look up, to, to, to think that he's coming soon. But when? When will Jesus come back? Like the disciples, we want to know. Tell me the signs. Church, that's not the main thing. It's not the main thing. The essential thing The main thing here is the personal, bodily, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Jesus is coming back. We can count on it. And Jesus' words are given to motivate us to get on with the work. Again, EFCA's statement, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, yes, And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke. uh, Yeah, we're in Luke. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. The passage was read earlier. Titus 2, 11 through 14. You get two sermons for the price of one today. Hopefully it doesn't feel like two sermons. I thought I was going to do just Titus 2, but I'm not. I won't be able to get into all that's here I'm only going to touch on it. I don't have time. doesn't allow me to, to bring out everything that's here in Titus 2, 11 through 14. But I do want to land the plan. I want to nail this down. All right. Hopefully you're there. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches. It motivates. It instructs us to what? Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now there's one word that shows up two times in those verses that I want to point out. It is the word appear. Appear. It's from which we get our word epiphany. There are two appearances here in these verses that he speaks of. Two epiphanies mentioned as our motivation. The first appearance, the first epiphany, was the manifestation of the grace of God in the person of Christ in the incarnation. That Jesus' first coming brought the offer of salvation to all people. And it's in his first appearance that God took the initiative by adding to his divinity, humanity, in order to rescue us from our own self-imposed sinful condition. God broke into our helpless situation to rescue us, to save us. And when Christ appeared, epiphany, grace appeared. What Christ has done for us is to be our motivation for turning from sin and to live 
godly lives. One motivation. Second motivation here for living the Christian life is not only looking back, but looking forward to the day when Christ will appear a second time. It says, while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing, epiphany. And we live between the two epiphanies, the two appearances. When he came in his incarnation and gave his life up for us on the cross, and when he will come again in power and great glory for those who are ready to meet him. Now, I have, to just, I have to ask this question. Are you ready to meet him? I didn't ask you. Do you have your future things all buttoned up? And how it's all going to play out? But are you ready because you understand what he's done for you and you're banking on the work of the cross, what Jesus did on the cross for your salvation? If so, then what awaits you is this blessed hope. A pastor was preparing his sermon in his office at home, and his little daughter walked in and said, Daddy, can we play? And he answered, I'm awfully sorry, sweetheart, but I'm right in the middle of of preparing my sermon. I'll tell you what, though, in an hour, I will play with you, okay? She answered, okay, when you finish, Daddy, I'm going to give you a great big hug. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, the dad replied. Well, she went to the door, and then she did this U-turn, and she came back to her dad and gave him a bone-breaking hug. The dad said to her, honey, I thought you were going to give me a hug after I finished. And she replied, daddy, I just wanted you to know what you have to look forward to. (laughs) I love that. See, we can taste the intimate child and father relationship with God. Yes, we can taste the blessings on this earth that come from his hand. We can taste a little of heaven here. It's not, but we can taste it sometimes. But these are only samplings of things to come. There's something much better waiting for you. There's more to come. The best is yet to come. We don't have all that God wants us to have yet. Future tense living. And God wants us living in light of the end every single day. Johnny Erickson Tata said this, another day gone, another day closer. And while we wait, church, get on with it. Get on with it. You know, I think it's really easier to sit around and talk timelines and debate which view is the right one. I think it's easier to do that than to get our act together. I think it's easier to do all that than to make painful decisions about our priorities. I think it's easier to do all that than to live like we really believe he is returning. That that we are to be about our mission to make disciples. As late Ray Charles put it, live every day like it's your last because one day you're going to be right. <laughs> All right, let's not waste our lives. Let's not live in panic. Let's not be weighed down with anxieties. No, 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 no. Get on with it. Get on with the work. Future tense living. Keep looking up, but keep your feet on the ground because we have a job to do. Stay alert. Be vigilant, and I speak to myself. Stay alert. The Telegraph, a British newspaper, reported that a flock of over 1,300 sheep had to be rounded up by police in a Spanish city after their shepherd fell asleep on the job. 
According to city authorities, a local resident dialed Spain's emergency number around 4.30 in the morning because there were sheep wandering all over the town. So the police had to do something about that and they went out and looking to find the shepherd and they found the shepherd outside of town. You know what he was doing? He was sound asleep. Dozing away happily. He was waiting until daylight to take the sheep up into the hill country where his flock would then graze during the hot summer months. But he fell asleep on the job. And together the embarrassed shepherd and and police officers were eventually able to extract the sheep from the city and return them to their pastures. All too many believers are dozing away happily, unprepared for the return of the Lord. Are we sleeping rather than serving? Jesus says, wake up, wake up. We have a job to do. We have a blessed hope. Jesus is returning. When? At any time. Are we living today with his coming in mind? Let's pray. God help us to live this out in our lives. Each one of us has to work that out and what it means. I pray that from the message this morning, from the words right there in scripture that we are built up, equipped, encouraged to go do the work that you've called us to do. We're not sleeping, we're serving until you come. We all oh, may we long for your appearing. We long for the day because we know when you come and you take us home that that is the best. That is the best. Better than anything we can compare it to here. And we just thank you in advance for the glorious day when that happens. In Jesus' name, amen.